welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. This is the second episode in our series called John's Jesus, and a look at systematic theology through the lens of the fourth gospel. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, uh, we'll begin with a psalm and a hymn, uh, really a a carol, uh, being a mere two and a half weeks to Christmas, Um, but first uh, from Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Now, I tend to avoid singing solo, so um, I'm going to read you uh, the words of this familiar carol, and maybe you could pause the tape afterward if you want to sing it to yourself. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And uh, since we're on a roll, uh, here's three more bits of poetry in our attempt to create something of a whole. First, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. That's from Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, of course. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's from John's prologue, chapter 1. And finally, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts and gave us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's from 2 Corinthians 4. In essence, poetry is where we turn when trying to describe the indescribable. And just when we have been lifted by poets and angel song, we come back to earth. The Council of Nicaea, 325, tries to express the same ideas in a slightly less poetic way. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. End quote. Recall that Nicaea is the first attempt to settle this God-man problem, trying to understand the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, located in the same person who came to earth and for a brief, shining moment dwelt among us. And while it lacks poetry, uh, and it happened because the newly Christian emperor wanted it to happen, uh, it remains a treasured understanding among believers ever since. 
but that's jumping ahead. Yet before we gather with the learneds and their imperial overseer, uh, and before we sing silly songs, uh, we need to return to the beginning, but not the beginning that seems to be the subject of so much poetry. No, we must trace back to our Greek and Hebrew forebears and create a bridge that will allow us to cross back to the word made flesh. Walter Brueggemann wrote what is perhaps the best single volume guide to the world of the Old Testament, calling it Reverberations of Faith. It's a thematic introduction to the Hebrew Bible and uh, helpful for our cause today. Uh, So I, I want you to listen and try to recall from last time the parallel argument to what Brueggemann suggests about wisdom. Wisdom teaching contains almost nothing of salvation miracles or covenantal commandments, only the slow, steady pondering of the gifts and demands of lived life. Reaching back to last week, we looked over four Gospels and drew a line between the synoptics and John, a line between the busy Jesus and the ponderous Jesus, who isn't offering the great reversals, but rather life eternal. So perhaps we have our first clue in the Old Testament beginnings of Jesus, both in the high poetry of Genesis and John 1, but also in the personification of wisdom. And in Proverbs, wisdom speaks. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. That's from Proverbs 8, verse 22 and following. Interestingly, in Proverbs, wisdom is a woman and God's primal companion in the process of creation. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hokmah, uh, call it the feminine side of the divine, present with God at creation and the template for the word that appears in John 1. And St. Paul, the the real Paul, who was pro-feminist all along, takes the wisdom of God and makes the connection for us. This is from 1 Corinthians 2. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught to us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. But we have the mind of Christ." We begin, then, to see the outline of a complete picture. The wisdom of God was with God in the beginning, speaking the world into being, giving birth, appropriately, to the life we know. Many in the world regard this as foolishness and cannot see, but God persists in revealing God's wisdom, first in the wise ones of the Hebrew Bible, and eventually in the Word made flesh. 
Now, before we get to the silly songs I promised, we need to take a trip to Athens to meet the logos of Greek thought. You'll recall from an earlier series that the Romans adored all things Greek. They they lived it and breathed it. They copied the art and the architecture, and they were the first to call the classics classics. So as the world of Rome replaced the world-conquering world of Alexander, the Greeks seemed to get the last laugh insofar as the Romans felt compelled to continue to promote Greek ideas. And ideas, of course, take on a life of their own. And just as we can point backward to the Greeks and say they invented the idea of democracy, the rule of the people, most people in the time of Rome could point backward to the Greeks and describe Plato's Timaeus. Plato's Timaeus is an account of the creation of the universe. It began as a dialogue with a creation theory described by a character in the dialogue called Timaeus. Again, it is a theory that most people would have been acquainted with and would have respected as an old story. According to the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy, Plato was moved by the order and beauty he saw in the universe and decided that it must have been created by a master craftsman, an entity that he called a demiurge. This divine craftsman created the constituent parts of the universe and ordered them in such a way that they could only produce good. For humans, then, uh, the gift of the demiurge is the ability to order our lives for the sake of maximum good and in doing so restore our souls to their original state of excellence. I hope that all the smiling and nodding that I imagine on the other side of the radio doesn't mean that I'm surrounded by neoplatonists. What truly matters is that this idea was at large in the world of thought and found its way to that most Greek and Roman Egyptian cities, Alexandria. Alexandria was the most visible sign of the Greek line of the pharaohs made most famous by Cleopatra, uh, last of the Ptolemaic rulers. Alexandria was an intellectual powerhouse with its famous library and meeting place for ancient scholars. The most notable uh, was Philo, Jewish scholar and great synthesizer, bringing together Jewish and Greek ideas, and much later becoming a favorite of the early church fathers. Philo brings together the Genesis account of creation and the Timaeus of Plato. Ideas such as God's eternity and utter uniqueness find full expression in Philo and cast a long shadow as Early theologians try to bring their Greek assumptions to Judeo-Christian thought. God, for Philo, is the unknowable, I am who I am, who speaks to Moses from the burning bush and could never appear to humans or in human form without losing God's mysterious uniqueness. To solve, then, the various ways in which God appears to humans and does not lose God's uniqueness, Philo points to the idea of the wisdom, or logos, word of God, found elsewhere in the Bible. And without getting too carried away, he also mentions the Holy Spirit, sketching out these three aspects of divine activity that Christian theologians will later call the Trinity. Philosophy of religion can be fun. Just to recap, 
we learned that the wisdom of God, Chokmah, was with God at the very beginning of creation, speaking the world into existence. And that world was perfect and orderly, reflecting the Greek idea that the Demiurge all set this in place, wanting the same order for us, and particularly in the life of our souls. But such a remarkable craftsman is unknowable, and when the craftsman does interact with the greats of the early tradition, it's the stuff of riddles and wrestling in the dark. To interact, then, God leans on God's own word, who can speak with the authority of having been present with God from the very beginning. And then Arius came along and ruined everything. Arius arguably the most famous heretic in Christian thought, lived 200 years after Philo in, you guessed it, Alexandria. He was a priest and a scholar and lived in the continuing intellectual hothouse that was Alexandria. He became convinced that the son of the emerging Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, was not preexistent, and he was very persuasive. Across the church, people were singing and saying his delightful words, there was a time when the sun was not. Um, You should try it. First, uh, try it to the tune of Amazing Grace, there was a time when the sun was not. Remember, I don't sing. Uh, Or, if you prefer, to the tune of Gilligan's Island. Uh, See, theology is really fun. All of this came to a head at the Council of Nicaea, 325. What was at stake was the very nature of God, specifically whether the Son was begotten or made, uh, preexistent somehow with God, or the product of divine production. If God made the Son, then they're not equal, and the Son is something less than God, maybe God-light, and this would not do. The rest of the church found John's prologue among the most compelling parts of the biblical record, and saw the same truth in passages such as John 17, where Jesus prays for all believers. I'll share that. My prayer is not for believers alone, Jesus said. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, uh, that all of them may be one, Father, uh, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. End quote. It also follows that the redemption found at Calvary only works if it is God dying on the cross and not some less-than-divine Son of God. That would be cosmic child abuse, as one theologian called it, and would hardly represent God's best hope for God's only Son. No, if, if God dies on the cross, experiencing the completeness of the human way, then and only then can God extend an end to all death. How this functions is a mystery, and it's also a cornerstone of our faith. All right, well, that was a tad heavier than planned. 
uh, but some important building blocks in the construction of our faith. Uh, next time, we'll learn the ever-important phrase, ego e me, and we'll meet some members of the Jesus Seminar. It will be like time traveling back to the 90s. Uh, thanks again for joining me.